before Cameron interjected there, I was just about to make the comment that if this was a cartoon or a TV show, Verlin, a couple of minutes back, there would have been a, a severe <laughs> screeching of brakes and go, hang on a second, back up, help to run a cult. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that was during <laughs> let, my let's, let's not just not skim over that piece. <laughs> yeah. You're not getting away with that one. Mental health. Mental health. Mental health. The mind is a terrible thing to this is the Straight Talking Mental Health Podcast, where after almost a minute and a half, I think I have finally got the intro done. <laughs> the reason being is I am absolutely exhausted. On this podcast, we talk straight about mental health, and that includes when you get fuck all sleep and can barely string a sentence together. My name is Alan Clark. I am a psychotherapist, as you'll hear from the rest of the shite is going to come out of my mouth. I talk shite. Sometimes I talk some facts about therapy and mental health. Because on this podcast, we're all about breaking the stigma around mental health. We're just trying to normalize the conversation and try and model those conversations as much as we can. This week on the show, we have author Verlin Darrell. You're not going to want to miss this because it's not every day that you get to listen to someone who actually helped to start a cult. So uh, really looking forward to to what Verlin has to say. Verlin is also the author of a book, Prodigy Quest. And on this week's show, we're not just talking to Verlin, but actually the topic we're going to be talking about is young adulthood. So people like yourself, Cameron Clark, my eldest son and journalism student, how are you doing? Well, apparently my tolerance for exhaustion is slightly higher than yours. Oh, man. <laughs> oh fuck, man. I'm so fucked. Most four. you obviously, you're not going to be able to hear it, but... Alan was struggling at the start. <laughs> it took a minute and a half of trying to say yeah, this he, is a straight-talking mental health podcast. Yeah. It was Where, the health part that got him. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, So, yeah, it was after... Oh, I just could not sleep. I drove up to Oma after mm. work last night, so I got up here at midnight, and then I think it was after 4 o'clock when I fell asleep, and then I just dozed on and off until quarter day at half seven this morning so i'm i'm absolutely running on fumes <laughs> so my apologies to everyone i'll try and i'll try and ramp up the the energy to get us you to might, get us, you might to kick get us into gear yeah when, when i get going i should be all right but what's mm. been going on with you how are you doing i'm great the, the weather's great. nice yeah. it's sunny outside don't know, don't so that's know what, you know it's it's all it always makes your mornings a little bit better when you don't see Pissing rain on your window. Yeah, definitely. I don't know what it's like here. The curtains are closed, so I've yet to see what the weather is like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm hoping it's all right, though. It does make such well, a huge um, difference in the mood, doesn't it? We're experiencing our two-week nice stint of weather kind of around the start of September, which yep. signifies kids going back kids to school. Kids going back to school, guaranteed that's in Ireland. exactly how you know. Guaranteed. <laughs> and then once that's over, it goes back to very shit for about six months <laughs> until we get to next March or April again. Yeah, that isn't that is entirely accurate of the of the yeah. Irish climate. Yeah. It's the it's the only the only part of the Irish weather you can guarantee is that when the kids go yeah. back to school it's gonna be nice for two weeks. <laughs> it's the one bit you can you can rely on. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely gonna be nice everyone starts everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's been going on with you? Um well I'm almost vaccinated. Almost by the end of the day, yeah. Well, oh, I have to, yeah. I have to, wait, a week. I have to yeah. wait a week after I get my second vaccine for it to kick in. So, I have my vaccine certain all, but if I tried to scan it eating doors now, it would just say invalid until yeah. later this evening. I think I'll call you an invalid or something last week. Or 
<laughs> I think I yeah, I got my cert at about eight PM last week. This day last week, so probably around the same time today when it yeah when it goes I, through. I had to unfortunately deflate a client yesterday who was who had her second vaccine uh, Monday and was looking mm. forward to going out for dinner on Saturday or Sunday. I was like, you can't. <laughs> She's like, what? Yeah. I was like, yeah. Cameron only spoke well on the podcast last week. It's uh, you got to give it seven days before it before it shows. But it's it's wild. They don't tell anybody. Yeah, well, that's so. She's like, oh god, thanks. Yeah. She was now she was deflated. I was like, well, just yeah. to save you the hassle of when you get there. Like you think the the people get handing out the vaccines would would tell you kind of as you're leaving, it's like, okay, you have your second vaccine, but you need a week for it to mm. to kick in before you're actually vaccinated. Because like on the HSE website and all, it says a week. Yeah. So I, I don't know why they don't tell people that and kind well, of just expect I do. Them to find out what they're doing. This government and this setup, it's uh... yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> it's it's standard practice. But yeah, like so many people get caught out by it. Like mm-hmm. I wouldn't know about it if I didn't work in the pub. Yeah, well, there you go. But you know, we, you know, we're not just educating on mental health. We're also educating on, well, you're not getting a meal <laughs> within seven days. <laughs> that client was deflated, but she was thankful that she at least knew, so she wasn't mm. walking in there just to be turned away. Yeah, which is fairly common at the minute. Yeah, as as was your like royal that, last week. Yeah. And like that, that's most of the reason we turn people away is because they they have their second vaccine, but they mm-hmm. haven't given it the that seven days, the week long waiting yeah. period. Yeah. Speaking, yeah, come come this evening, I'll be able to do it. Good man. Speaking of last week, we had James on last week, former Royal Marine sniper. We spoke about men's mental health. What, what was that episode like? What's your takeaway from that? My takeaway is that we did not talk enough about the sniping aspect. Of James's career, uh, I tried. I, James wasn't going. Yeah. There. he wasn't going there. Yeah. Um, so, which was unfortunate. It is a mental health podcast, but it would have been an absolute. Yeah, thing. actually, John, <laughs> I might do. I might reach out to James and see if he knows anyone that that might come on and uh, talk about their experience. Um, I saw, I saw somebody. Did you see that the reply to the tweet about yes. his episode? <laughs> yes, Jesus. <laughs> and I don't know if that was like. Because he said he was a former Marine or something himself, but it sounded like a really pissy reply. No, no, no. No, he's not saying he was a um, he, th- this individual. I was going to dive for the correspondence, but I jump into it. So we had a we had a tweet on Twitter, obviously, rather than a tweet on Instagram. <laughs> tweet on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we had a tweet on Twitter. Um, and I won't name the individual because I don't know if they're being sarky or if it's a genuine question. And it is as a former sniper. So I, I put the, the the post up around uh, James had spoke about how the death of his father had kind of informed the passion that he has for work now, and you know working with a lot of men. And you, because of his father's health, if James's father died when he was six. James said, "There's an element of my dad dying that that lies in the passion of what I do." Um, and I put it up as a you know a quote around fatherhood and etc. And and this and again I don't want to name it because I don't know if they're just making a snippy comment or whatever maybe. But this is as a former sniper, did he ever think he might be killing someone else's father? I I did I did get the kind of snarky remark. From yeah, that. I, I I thought so. Um, I didn't reply. I said I'd leave it for the podcast. Uh, yeah, because we're not we're not entirely sure what that is, and we're not used to getting replies like that. Yeah, well, there, there was one other one I, I, I'll get into now in a second. But uh, what I, what I say to the tweet is, well, what about Afghan snipers trying to kill James, who is a father? That's mm. that's war, you know. Um, and you know, I'm not getting into the politics of that. 
um, because you know that's that's not what we do, and I wouldn't I wouldn't no, know enough about not, it to speak with any kind of authority. Concerned um, with, yeah, I can speak a little bit about the politics in Ireland because we're living it, but I'm, mm. not, I'm not I'm not too open to politics of Afghanistan. As for foreign policies, yeah, I yeah, really absolutely, get yeah, it's it's outside our our realm of expertise. Um, yeah, there there was one other we never we never get uh, any sort of comments like that. And like I said, I don't know if it was snippy. I took it as a bit snippy, but I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt that you know because I don't I don't even know if this person follows us or anything like that. Um, mm. But look, they asked they asked a genuine question, you know. Uh, but the same is true of the other side. So there was people trying to kill James, who is also a father. So mm-hmm. that would be my my comment to that. We had a, we had a comment before on an episode, and again, I'm not I'm not going to go into it. But this person left a fairly fucking fairly fucking sarky tweet, um, and it was like I replied, I replied back genuinely. But I went through, to, uh, clicked into their profile just to kind of see. And every fucking one of their tweet, their tweets is having a go at someone. Oh, like their sole purpose on Twitter is to get onto someone about something. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, Jesus Christ, that's you know, why why would you be doing that? Like, it's you not have anything better to do with your time. Yeah, that's it. Like, but I went through and it's having a go at someone for saying this or having a go at someone else for saying that, and I was like, fucking hell, like that's that's a a fairly negative existence like you can't be mm. you can't be in a good headspace if that's if that's all you do mm. just just to go at anyone that says something you don't like or you know it's just a the, those the, those comments are absolutely in the minority in fact those those are the only two mm-hmm. that, <laughs> that are there uh, but look as i said probably a genuine question but the same the same is true of the other side but you you saw it as well anyway <laughs> i did i did see it yeah i was going to text you about it and then it said it's probably best just to leave it for today yeah yeah but yeah, as um, i said it i just, covered on the podcast so just to show you know we, we do we do cover mm. the negative side when, when we when we do get it mm-hmm. it wasn't a it wasn't an attack on us or anything like that just a, a bit of a <laughs> snipe at at james i presume yeah well on top of that i think it's just going to go back what you're saying about thinking about last week's episode i think to hear about the importance of men's mental health from somebody like a, a sniper mm. or a marine who you typically think you know double hard you know, real man manly you know they don't yeah, yeah. they don't they don't need to think about that sort of stuff mm. but to hear it from james's point of view i think is very important mm. Absolutely. because you know you would think of them as somebody who probably doesn't have to deal with that sort of stuff because they're thinking about all the other stuff that could kill them, and that's the and I think I think that's probably the problem as well because I think there may be a little bit complicit in it as well that you know within the within any of the the armed forces you know you can't be seen as weak, you can't be mm. you can't be seen as being anxious or being depressed or anything like that. Um, so I think I think the, the system in and of itself is a, is a bit complicit. The interesting mm. thing is, as you said, you know I, I, I asked a couple of probing questions around James's experience. Uh, James was in Afghanistan. And he had spoke about PTSD, but PTSD for him was coming out of the coming out of the core. You know, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't anything he'd seen when he was in Afghanistan or anything like that. It was it was adjusting back to the real world. Mm. It was kind of almost like um, remember Shawshank Redemption? What was mm. the name of the the older man? Oh who left, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who left couldn't and could, couldn't get back into reality? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like that. That's institutionalized. Yeah. Mm. Actually, you know that as a as I spoke about it or as I thought about it afterwards, that that episode, while it was titled "Men's Mental Health," could just as easily have been called "Existentialism," and mm-hmm. meaning, 
because James touched on when he was in the army, when he was in the Royal Marines, he had a sense of belonging, he had a sense of purpose, he had a sense of camaraderie, there was a brotherhood there. And as he said, he never he never suffered with his mental health when when he was in the when he was in there. Suffered mm. before and he suffered after. So while he was in there, he had this sense of purpose. And then once he came out, he had no sense of purpose. He was lost. And um I said it to James at the start, he did about a ten minute winter of himself. And um I had said it to him, like, you know, of how much he has defined himself by his work. And um, so when you lose that, you lose everything. You, mm-hmm. you are going to you are going to crash. You are going to uh, be depressed and you are going to become suicidal. And you see a lot of times with people that retire, you know, die like six months after retire because there's nothing to get up for. There's nothing, mm-hmm. there's nothing in their life that gives it meaning. So they just fucking fade away with, with nothing to do for themselves. No, 100%. Um... I just think it's important to kind of hear that sort of side of it, especially Absolutely, from, yeah. like I said, somebody who was who was a Marine who you think of as kind of never lets anything phase them because they're worried about getting killed all the time by other people yeah. rather than letting their own heads and, get and at them. James, very much like myself, as you know, he does he does speak about uh, you know as he said the wobbles that he has, mm. um, and you know that's that's what we do on this. You know, if we have a bad day or you know not feeling great, you know, we name that and go. And I think one of the first things, I think Peter, even on the very first episode, he was like, I thought psychotherapists had their shit together. I was like, no, like, you know, we're <laughs> fucking human. Mm-hmm. You know, snipers have bad days. Psychotherapists have bad days. Anyone that's human has a bad day or a bad period mm-hmm. in life. That's just a part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's what we try to do on this. We normalize it and, you know, we have these conversations and we have guests on that, that have the conversations as well. Mm-hmm. Going, Jesus, well, he was a Royal Marine and all the training he's had and he still has bad days. He felt depressed and he was mm. he was on the verge of killing himself. So that's what we do. And you can just hear from the way James talks that he's so passionate about mm. what he does now and trying to help. Do, do you know what it reminded me better of? Themselves. Uh, have you ever seen the movie uh, Crazy Stupid Love? Have you ever seen that no. film? Oh, that's a great film, man. Uh, Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling, uh, Emma Stone. Ryan Gosling is this real fucking cool ladies' man, you know. He's just shit cool, just goes into the bar, hits on a woman, takes her home kind of thing. And then Steve Carell, the, the marriage breaks up and uh, Ryan Gosling kind of takes him under his wing and, um, mm. you know, fucking turns him into a bit of a ladies' man and all this kind of thing. I won't ruin the rest of the film, but that's that's the basic premise of it. But it turns out um, that, you know, Ryan Gosling kind of, takes the shine to Steve Carell's character, who's a bit of a loser because he reminded him of his father and he was trying to fix his father, essentially, in quotation marks. Um, his father was a bit of a pushover. Um, and for James then as well, of you know, trying to make these men better because his father died as a heart attack, you know, when James was just six. So he, you know, he's really mm. pushing men's physical and mental health to Ensure that doesn't happen. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So just goes to show folks, if you go to therapy and they want to ask about your childhood and they're asking you about your parents and you're like, What the fuck has that got to do with today? It's got everything to do with today. Yeah, it's usually (laughs) where it starts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We are and James kind of touched on it because you know, I'm I'm a result of the last fifteen years of my life. I was like, nah, you're the result of the last forty odd years of your life. We Mm -hmm. all are, you know. Um so that was that was a huge. It was great to be able to to 
to get to tell that story and mm. give everyone the information around it so that everyone knows, oh, yeah, all right, everyone has bad days, even these people that are so uh, rigorously trained. Mm-hmm. That was last week. So we, we touched on a little bit of correspondence that, that we had there um, on, on the kind of snippier side, uh, we think. We don't know. We give the benefit of the doubt. You think so. I thought so, but... You know, I'm not going to, not going to. Uh, that's only two people's opinions. Name and shame, absolutely. Yeah, that's pretty good. And over a year, nearly a year mm. and a half, we'll take that. Um, one person who did um, send us a nice tweet, Mark gave a retweet to one of our um, posts about James. I thanked him for the for the retweet. He said it's a pleasure. I think what you guys are doing is fantastic. It's pretty That's cool, very nice one. Thanks yeah, very much, yeah. Mark. Yeah. One of the ones we actually missed on last week was we, we had some correspondence around Paul. Paul was on talking about his own mental health. Paul, one of our one of the biggest supporters of the podcast, always retweets, always comments and puts many people onto it. And we know that because those people have come at us and told us and some have I mm-hmm. think some have actually been we've had correspondence from them. Rachel uh rachel commented on the facebook page rachel uh said brilliant nice to hear someone from my hometown sheffield paul was from up north wasn't he he was up north mm. um and then this is where i get a little bit confused because i don't know if she's mixed up paul's name or she's mixed up my name but it is well done andy and thank you for the host you are awesome <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know who is that directed at rachel but thanks very much it was either one of us <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if it's yeah, I don't know if she's talking about Paul. I don't know if she's saying well done, Paul, and thank you for the host. You are awesome. Or well done, Alan. No, it must be Paul. Well done, Andy, for being Paul Andy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So thanks very much to for Rachel. She had she had the feedback on on Paul's episode. And Orla did as well. Thank you, Paul, for sharing your story. I enjoyed listening as I found it real and relatable. Hashtag breaking the stigma. Hashtag it's good to talk. Certainly is. It's always amazing how you know people's stories resonate with people. We should get a hashtag. We tried. Peter used to have STMH. Used to no, be but we should no, yeah, but that that's like that's the podcast name. I don't think that would work. We need, yeah. we need like a, a motto, but, and then we need to get like you know you know the way some hashtags have the logo next to them. Yeah, yeah. We need one of those. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> but STMH was also I was sent to P. It's like nah, that's not a good. That's not a good hashtag because there's already one, and it means straight to my heart. <laughs> and uh, I think there was a lot of yeah, religious. You can't, you, can't, you can't steal. You can't steal somebody else's hashtag, yeah, yeah. especially a religious one. When I think, all yeah, I do is like shit God, on religion. God's blessing straight to my heart, or something <laughs> like that. I think that's what it was, or I don't know. So we tried with the SDMH podcast, but as you know, yeah. it's so difficult with the fucking social media. Yeah, and maybe and we, we need a motto. Don't do it all the time. Yeah, if you have yeah. any ideas for a motto, actually, do you know what I've been thinking about? I might as well get into it now. I was thinking well, about like maybe getting getting some t-shirts done or something. You know, some people merch could, people could yeah some merch with like and and maybe this could be the maybe this could be the the motto check your head yeah it's not a bad idea yeah it was a beastie boys album and i think it have, you, of, have you looked into it i haven't looked into it it was just a thought a, a random yeah. rambling that, that i do have uh, we have to make them look good if we're going to be wearing them around oh yeah because like absolutely. most merch is Fuck it, you'd be embarrassed to wear it. No, we have the we have the logo on it on you know big on the back or you know check your head on the chest or vice versa. Um, yeah, but I think I don't know what you think. I don't think I think it's a good idea. Yeah, people, let us know if it's something you'd be interested in. You know, drop us a line. Let us know you'd be interested. Obviously, we wouldn't wouldn't be selling it for profit. Any any money that would ever be made on anything on the podcast just goes directly back into 
the podcast. advertising. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Boosting ads on Facebook. And, yeah, that's that's exactly it. So if people don't had, know we don't make money off this. We do not. It costs us money. Yeah, it costs us money. So <laughs> Well, yeah. it costs you money. It costs me money, yeah, you don't pay. <laughs> and P P P contra- contributes to the yeah. to the cost of the hosting. So um but the, the likes of Riverside that we use here for recording, I pay for that and all of that. So mm. but if anyone would be interested in, you know, maybe some t shirts or like a polo shirt or something like that, let us know. Or a hat or you know, we'll have we'll have a look what the options are if there's a market for it or people would like to would like to support us. You know, well you're not just supporting us. Like you're getting something. So that that was my random rambling. That's the correspondence. So those people got to us on Twitter, those people got to us on Facebook. If you'd like to do that, you can do so. You would get us at Straight Talking Mental Head Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to get us on Twitter, if you want to form a, a snippy comment or a nice comment, <laughs> we'll we, we take we, them we all. We prefer the nice ones. We prefer the nice ones, yeah. But look, it's a it's a valid opinion. It's a valid question. Yeah. Um, and we don't have to answer to it. You know, we weren't the ones in Afghanistan. A snippy reply is still a reply. It's still look, a reply. It looks yeah. good when you scroll past the post and see a few more replies. Yeah. Um, Just don't look at them. If you do want to get us on Twitter, it's STR8 Talking Pod. That's the number eight, STR8. We're not trying to be cool. It's just that Twitter usernames are only allowed to be 15 characters long. So <laughs> that's why it's not like straight out of Compton. It's just straight because that's all I can fit on. <laughs> uh, so you can do that. If you want to get us on the website, stmhpodcast.com. And if you want to email us, like James did, like many of our guests done, like Verlin's publicist did, if you want to reach out to us, the email is hello at stmhpodcast.com. That's the social media plug. Anything else that's been going on with you? I had a just a random thought there. Okay. Would it be easier Thank to change you. the Twitter username to STMHPod? Can you change you can change, I think, can you? Can you change Yeah, it? you can just change it. Like I don't know if it'd be available or not. I just ah, think it'd be easier than having the STR and then a the number eight. Yeah. Yeah. Because like we say STMH anyway for the email. Yeah. Yeah, we changed that. Yeah, we changed that for the website. We look into it. Yeah. Unless someone goes off now and fucking does it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll have a look at it before the episode goes Yeah, yeah. yeah, before the episode goes <laughs> Before someone tries to rob it. just to get yeah, on yeah. fucking nerves. <laughs> yeah. Start, start the sending fucking ransom texts. Yeah. And, you, uh, you can have the STMH. Tweeting, <laughs> tweeting about all the bad stuff on the show, <laughs> which is mostly probably going to be anything that comes out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, you had a um, random thought. Yeah. Any smiles yeah, and riles? Yeah, I've I've got I've got a small rile that's probably going to seem a lot less yeah. of a big deal to most people than it is to me. But right. let, let me explain it first. So my internet has been having a weird problem for the last like week, mm. where it would cut out for about half a second, and not like you know if you hear half a second, it doesn't sound that bad, but it's not mm. that it buffers. The internet goes off. Oh. for half a second so if i'm watching netflix or i'm playing a game or something it cuts me from the network so it Log back me. in yeah because the internet goes completely off oh, for about half a second so like if i'm watching netflix it's not like we're just buffers for half a second <laughs> netflix kicks me because i have oh. no connection anymore oh yeah of course so i'd have to load back in or say like if i'm playing playing an online game, game with the lads yeah. yeah it just boots me from it and i have to jump back in then and it's been very irritating hmm it's been getting on my nerves now. It hasn't happened for a few days. I think it might might have stopped, but we're not for four or five days. Jeez, no electricity was, a few weeks ago. No internet now for half a second. Poor just a shithole. And normally my internet's quite good, and yeah. what normally gets the yeah, like this. you you were fucking normally bragging at me. Oh, your yeah. your internet is ass. That's fucking. Well, your ass. your internet was ass. It was. It's not now. <laughs> no, it was it was dire. 
Jesus. No, so that that that's my royal. Let's kind of. It sounds small, but it's been very irritating for the past few days. <laughs> yeah. But you've had. You've been working. You're jabbed. You're waiting for today. Today is your your week. Yeah. That's yeah. actually my smile. Is that by the end of the day, I will be fully vaccinated. I can now let people spit on me. I can't Lovely. spit on other people Lovely. because they might not have the vaccine. <laughs> Back to the spitting. <laughs> yeah, but they can spit on me all they like. And what you can also do is you can sit in the pub and have a meal where you work. Yeah, where I where you normally serve other anywhere. people. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable, yeah, I Jeff. I can't wait. <laughs> See that sports pants? Because sports I, pants in. I went out on um, Monday night. My friend is moving to France, so we had like a little going away thing for it. There was only a few of us there. We were sitting out in a beer garden mm. and the amount of fucking wasps that were just oh, yeah. all over us because there was a table next to us <laughs> drinking cocktails. So obviously yeah. it's all like, sugar, you know, sweet. Yeah, so yeah. the wasps were swarming them and then they left and they decided to come pick on us then. I'm yeah. trying to sit down and have a drink like a fucking three or four wasps just flying around me. <laughs> so well, I can't wait to be back indoors. Did we get a away wasp? from those little bastards? Uh, did we get a wasp on Sunday for breakfast? Did we? Ashling is terrified of wasps. Yeah, we did. No, it, uh, it kind yeah. of flew over her head. <laughs> we were out for dinner on Saturday night in Galair. She's not. She hasn't been able to get the vaccine yet, so she's outside. Um, and she was like a fucking briar. She was snipping at me, and I'm like, like, did I say something wrong? What's going on? No, she was just stressed out from the number of two wasps <laughs> that kept flying overhead. And she's like, Alan, get it, get it. I'm like, Ashley, it's 10 feet in the fucking air. I can't reach. <laughs> but quite, quite Your stressful. go-go gadget arms need to come yeah, out. Yeah, I know. Angry little bastards, wasps. <laughs> yeah. Don't mind bees, but wasps yeah. need to... Oh, everyone's like, save the bees. Everyone, everyone do anything yeah. for a bee, but a wasp... Nobody says dickhead. save a wasp. Yeah, yeah, you absolute dickhead, you evil little bastard. It's like going around and saying, save the nettles. <laughs> Nobody likes <laughs> save them. Save the nettles. Ah, there's old ones that would eat nettle soup and all of that. Yeah, fucking weirdos. Yeah, I know. Just eat regular soup. Good old Irish poverty when you'd fuck all else to eat, so you had to eat whatever grew in the ditch. <laughs> Famine time le- left over. So you eat the things that cause an immense amount of pain. Yeah. <laughs> so getting the second jab or being eligible today. That's your smile. Yeah, Any other smiles or reals? No, that's my I'm I'm balanced now. I'm one I'm back to one and one. One and one. Yeah. <laughs> and what about you? Smiles and royals. Smiles and royals. Oh well I had a, I had a little I had a mini little smile. Um <laughs> and I think I think I said it when we were out for breakfast. I was thinking of having a new feature called Ashling's Insult of the Week. <laughs> <laughs> And she's like, no, that makes me look really bad. I was like, but they're fucking zingers. And they're, no, and they're all true. Good. Yeah, I know. It's like, you're a fucking, you're a witty bitch. Like, this is, this is gold. Mm. Uh, so what did she have? She had a couple last week or a couple of weeks ago where uh, she said I was like a child watching CBeebies, watching the same song over and over again, the way I was watching. That was Hamilton, about the Hamilton song. Or listening to Hamilton. Yeah. And then how I could never catch COVID because there's nothing to COVID to fucking catch me. I'm so antisocial. I wouldn't pass it on to anyone. So the virus is <laughs> like, spread that. leave him alone. So I was like, yeah. all of those are true. <laughs> we were in <laughs> Dublin. Um, oh yeah. Big Royal. So picked that thing up from the bus at uh, 20 past three on Friday. I was like, Oh, fucking rush hour traffic in Dublin. But might just get ahead of it. Be a little bit delayed, except it took me one hour and a half to get from bus Aris to Cable street bridge. Do you call uh, it Bosaurus? Bosaurus, yeah. Bosaurus. Bosaurus. No, Bosaurus. I don't know. Whatever. The fucking place where you get the bus. Yeah, that place. <laughs> An hour and a half um, to get that far. 
And for any, <laughs> it's like, for it's like a fifteen-minute walk. Yeah, for anyone outside Ireland, that's about a fifteen-minute walk. Um, and it took me an hour and a half. And like lights were going green on a Connor Bridge, five six times, just not not just not moving. Like the, the traffic on the keys is an absolute joke. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh fuck this. There's no point sitting in traffic. And worst of all, I was running out of fuel in the car. <laughs> oh fuck! So you couldn't even do like a really big detour. Because I was driving up, I was like seventy-five kilometers there. I'm fucking laughing in the in the fuel range in the car. Mm. And then once the car goes below fifty kilometers, it doesn't give you it's like fuel now kind of thing. Like, mm. so I didn't know how much I get. I was wasting fuel in the car. Oh, it, it doesn't like, show oh, the kilometers need, anymore. No, once it gets so low, it doesn't show. It's like fucking get fuel, get fuel. Yeah. And I was like sitting there going, oh shit, am I going to run out of fucking, am I going to run out of fuel in the car? Am I going to be parked up on the keys further holding up the traffic? (laughs) So I was like, come on, fuck this, we we go and get something to eat. Um, So drove, whipped off, drove into Dublin and it's like, oh shit, we can can get a coffee. And she's like, we can get a coffee. She's like, I can get a coffee, you can get a fruit juice. I don't drink coffee and I'm like a yeah. fucking child Man, <laughs> coffee drinkers have fierce notions about themselves I think people that don't drink coffee are like the fucking peasants peasants of the world yeah <laughs> living in poverty so no, coffee is just not nice I think people who drink coffee don't actually like coffee they just like to say they drink coffee yeah <laughs> I'd love to drink coffee I love the smell of it it looks just like a just a sensory experience the smell of it and the texture of it but I just don't like yeah, it you have notions about yourself I do I, I'd be an absolute total coffee wanker I've said it here yeah. multiple times I'd have one of them big machines I'd have the whole lot like so it's probably a good job that I don't like coffee spend like two grand on a coffee machine just, <laughs> yeah. just to just to have one just have the have smell in the kitchen coffee? in the mornings no no not really just like how the machine looks in the house yeah <laughs> so yeah so she's like no that's going to make me look really bad I was like but well, these are zingers like and every one of them are accurate like just paints mm. as being really really funny and she's like it's not nice it's like but there are the times we're like oh, I fucking love you so much <laughs> insult me <laughs> be funny <laughs> so that, that was that was my little that. smile my other my other smile related to asking is we're heading off to Saigo today uh, so part of the reason I am absolutely bollocks tired was I drove up to home last night get up here at midnight after finishing work at half nine so we're driving to we're driving to Sligo this morning. Um, so going away for a couple of days. Thanks to Connor in the in the Clayton Hotel, uh, friend Connor, gratefully hooking us up uh, with a nice room. So really looking forward to that. Uh, hopefully we got the weather. Uh, I have a client that's a pilot, and he had to take a phone call last night. Or supposed to be flying around Donegal or night flight or something like that, and he got a phone call that said cancelled fog, and I was like. Oh, I said, well, I'm heading to Sligo tomorrow. He goes, ah, he says, you'll have fog in the morning. I was driving up, driving up last night. I got to a point outside Ochnacloy and the fucking fog. I was like, well, their weather prediction was bang on. <laughs> Had to slow Is down the weather bad up north? I don't we know. We had customers in last night that said, like, the weather in Donegal has been absolutely fucking terrible. No, well. For about yeah, a week. I don't know. Well, and I'm hoping it's not too came down to the south and it's. Like no, really we've hot. scorched and we've we yeah. 20 degrees we've had 20 21 degrees here this week yeah, it's uh, been so more it's, than that yeah it's been oh, has it? near 24 and 25 yeah oh wow oh, yeah didn't see that yeah so that's that's i feel every bit of it because i work in a greenhouse oh yeah of course yeah <laughs> i don't see any of it because i work in a fucking office clients will yeah. go jesus gorgeous out there is it it looks nice <laughs> <laughs> that's you right been here for 12 hours i wouldn't know <laughs> yeah i couldn't tell you <laughs> Everyone says so. I, I I trust them. So that's 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 me smiles. Um Ashley insulted me. 
she said no. She goes, no, it pains me badly. It's like, no, no, it's good because <laughs> I love it. And then heading to Sligo. That's that's me to smile. I mean, Royals. Was it not um, the traffic? No, not not the traffic. That was oh, that's that's a bad one. I was listening, oh. as you know, as you as you full well know, I'm a huge Formula One fan. Anyone any regular mm-hmm. listens to the podcast know that I'm a huge Formula One fan. And Formula One, the official, they have a podcast called Beyond the Grid. Tom Clarkson interviews drivers and you know major kind of figures in the world of Formula One. Mm-hmm. And I've been listening to the back catalog. I'm so far behind. Like so, they had an episode with Ross Braun. Ross Braun was the former technical director of Ferrari, who was. You know, there when Michael Schumacher won everything, um, was there at Benetton when <laughs> Michael Schumacher everything. won. Yeah, it was it was there in the um, setting up of Mercedes. He's now the head of like the motorsport side of Formula One. Um, and in 2009, so a kind of fairy tale story, Honda, after the economic crash in 2008, Honda, the team pulled out of Formula One, just pulled out. And they were like, "Yeah, we're gone. That's it." And Ross Braun was like, "Man, you can't really, you can't do that when your when your company is based in the UK. You know, there's procedures and all of this kind of thing." So a management buyout. They bought the team, and they ended up winning the constructors' championship and drivers' championship. That's when Jensen Button won in two thousand and nine. But he spoke about when they were trying to get investors, and they had a possible buyer for the team. And now he didn't name this individual, but he said, "You know, we had our suspicions about this person, so we got a private detective." And on Christmas Eve, we found out that this person wasn't who they said they were. But he said this person had taken the Irish banks for millions. They were just fucking throwing money at this person with property and all of this kind of thing. Had a mm. kind of made up property portfolio or something like that. So a private business, small Formula One team, as it would have been at that time, was able to find out at Christmas time and found out on Christmas Eve this guy was a fraud wasn't who he claimed to be. We're not going through with this deal. And the Irish banks just fucking gave him millions and millions, maybe billions, that we've all bailed out. <laughs> and then so, I nearly got done for fraud for a dance class in Manchester last week. And yeah. nobody's investigating that. <laughs> yeah. You didn't, you didn't who talk was this about dancer that? trying to take my money? Yeah. For, no, we talked about it on the show. Yeah, we mentioned it. You mentioned it. Yeah. Well, we... Well, we said last week, so uh, yeah, yeah. But there, there's the insight into the background. We have to record two two interviews last week because I'm going away this week. So, and instead of missing out on an episode, we recorded Verlin last week. And as you're going to hear later on, Cameron's card got skimmed. <laughs> yeah, or like in in the middle of the recording, like I had to, yeah. I had to jump <laughs> out while to, we were recording sorry, lads. <laughs> because I got a cough in the bank. Yeah, <laughs> to say so, that yeah. Something. <laughs> So that 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 was that was me that was one of me royals. I thought that was going to be my big royal of how the Irish banks never fucking invested this this guy gave him millions mm-hmm. and millions. We've since bailed out the banks since the economic crash, and yet Ross Braun can get a private detective and find out that this lad isn't who he says he is. Mm-hmm. Well, we all we know that the Irish banks aren't uh, absolutely yeah. And speaking of speaking of Irish, uh, my big royal, the fucking All Ireland hurdle final man. What about 40,000 people in Crow Park? Oh, okay. Yeah. At the weekend, as Limerick played Cork. And I was dropping Ashing back. So we're going to have to leave early. We've got to get a, you know, we got to beat the traffic. All the traffic is going to be coming up from Limerick and Cork, which is which is our direction. Mm-hmm. Walking around outside the pubs outside, people fucking all over each other, places crammed in the outdoor drinking areas. And Ashing's going, You're getting on to me with Oma. I was like, well, it's not fucking me. I'm the one. I'm the one going on about the hypocrisy of it all. 
So no music events of any sort are allowed in Ireland. Uh, yet 40,000 people were in Crow Park. Now, the capacity of Crow Park is bigger than that, but you only have so many entrances and exits, and everyone was just funneled into these. Mm. And worst of all, fucking Micheál Martin, the Taoiseach, the Prime Minister of Ireland, was at the fucking game. When one of the best comments I've seen on the social media around it, someone said that, Jesus Christ, I hope one of the players don't accidentally pick up a guitar rather than a hurl. <laughs> They'll have to cancel it. <laughs> so apparently, you know, we know we know COVID mutates and, as you know, we've had Delta variants and all these things. But this virus is so fucking smart that it knows the difference between a musical event and a hurling event. So you can uh, only catch I don't, COVID. I don't mind the big capacity like at games and all, but just kind of give everyone the same treatment. Don't Absolutely. have a bias towards sports events. Absolutely. Like Electric Picnic can barely even go. Well, I don't even... No, they're not appealing. No, no they've appealed appeal and, and it was rejected again. Oh, it's rejected again. Yeah, it's rejected again. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, and that's with completely vaccinated people. Like, I don't think you have to be vaccinated to go to a... No. A gag no, game, you do you? Don't. No, no. That's but it shows... It's two, two things. It shows the sway that the GAA have in Ireland. And mm-hmm. the, the new Catholic Church, as everyone is saying. And the hypocrisy of the government that... They will allow that many. I think if you go to the gay theatre, uh, you know, a couple of hundred seats, you know, the arts have been decimated. Live entertainment has been decimated. Um, you know, they're only allowed 40 or 50 people at any one show. Yeah, there was, there was customers in last night said if you're going to a show like that, you have to buy, and it's safe two people, you have to buy four tickets. Yeah. Because oh, if you're taking really? up four, you have to take up four seats like you have to have the gap Jesus on either side. Jesus Christ. So you have to buy four seats instead of two. And that's what, like, they said they'd be very... They'd be very frequent at theatres. Yeah, they yeah. can't go because they're not going to pay for four tickets. Man, that's and look, you can't blame the theatres. They're trying to mm-hmm. they're trying to keep the doors open. I mean, that's not even that's going, it. You know, yeah. to pay staff, to pay the actors, and any of the professional mm-hmm. theatres. But that's the kind of stuff they have to do while <clears throat> the yeah. games can fill up. Yeah, and you know the the worst thing as well is that how Ireland and the government and board falls and all this kind of thing, and they promote the arts. They promote Ireland as this land mm-hmm. of culture. Our poets, our writers, the fucking troll you you two out on everything like you know any of the big bands as like mm-hmm. yeah but like you know the, the abbey theater the gay theater the gaiety that's like yeah but you're not putting on fucking shows mm-hmm. you know, bring a football inside and you and you just can <laughs> let, uh, let them kick around the football on stage for a while absolutely yeah oh, oh to be allowed then yeah mm. you can have fucking 15 lads 30 lads on stage yeah. they're kicking a football around and like um, i don't want to take anything away from the the football supporters like they should no, be not allowed pissing, to have their fans but so yeah. but so should everybody else yeah yeah especially now that what are we at now i think we're at 90 percent of the adult population in the country is vaccinated is this is it that is it it could be it could be 85 it's 85 yeah, 90%. It's, it's high enough so anyway, it's, it's yeah. very high yeah it's high enough that venues should be allowed people in again yeah and not at the most minimal capacity possible yeah so yeah, that's 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 me fucking big royal the hypocrisy of the government and then you know Michael Martin saying no no to the arts all this sort of thing and there he is in fucking Crow Park like just rubbing it in people's faces like mm-hmm. I think it's a real shun to the same industry that they you know, dole out whenever they need it to to attract investors or you know movie studios up to Ardmore or anything like that it's tax breaks and I think I just think it's a joke. No, you're absolutely right. So that's that's me smiles and that's me riles. So this week on the Straight Talking Mental Health Podcast, we are talking to author, psychotherapist, poet, singer, and I'm sure you're going to hear a lot more descriptive terms as Mr. Verlin Darrow tells us of his life. And the oh, he is the author of Prodigy Quest, a young adult speculative fiction and mystery book. 
an author, poet, singer, taxi driver, professional volleyball player. There is quite some life, I think, to be to be got at as we discuss some more Verlin. Yeah. Verlin, how are you doing? Well, none of it's time. I'm good. Uh, none of that simultaneously. Thank <laughs> that would have been fairly <laughs> impressive. Ter- <laughs> it would tear me into pieces. The, the first half of my life was first half was very continuity challenged. It was just all these episodes of trying to do this, trying to do that, and I, I went all out and really, you know, got some more. But then I kind of graduated myself out of it. Ended up with psychotherapy mm. and writing as the two things okay. I do now. Where in the world are you tonight, Verlin? Well, tonight for us, daytime for you. I am in I'm in La Selva Beach, California which is in Northern California, about 90 miles south of San Francisco, just off the coast. So the nearest big town is Santa Cruz, California, which some people yeah. may have heard of because they make skateboards and a bunch mm-hmm. of other stuff. A very California, we think generally, you know, fairly laid back. Fairly uh, hot. <laughs> I would say so. It's actually not hot at all where we are. Uh, and Southern California is so much different. You know, the things on TV that come out of there are just another world than than up here. We're kind of in a... A foresty, foggy kind of place. Yeah. You know, right now it's the middle of summer and it's it's about 64. 64, so s- oh, 64 Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. I'm sorry, I have no idea what that is. is. I'll tell you now what it is. I think it's about a third, I think. I think it. How about how about this? A light sweater is all you need outside. <laughs> oh, 17. Well, you wouldn't wear shorts. Wear Irish. If, if it's 17, wear, wear out in t-shirt we're, and shorts. Wear shorts and t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah. We're like, oh, Good yeah, point. get the barbecue ready. Yeah, 64. This, that's about beach weather for degrees. us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah anyway it's nice here i like it a lot i traveled around live a lot of different places and this is perfect for me right. verlin i i kind of introed a little bit but i i suspect i didn't do it any sort of justice so we know where in the world you are but if you could tell us a little bit about yourself from your point of view outside of all of those titles that we've riddled off there well i i grew up being kind of a mess um uh, about 10, I decided I didn't want to turn out like my parents. I didn't want to follow any of the rules, and I didn't really want to be what I was being raised to be. So I just kind of launched this idea from 10 forward. I was going to invent myself, and I wasn't going to talk about anything with anybody important. Uh, I mean, the other way around. I wasn't going to talk with anybody about anything important because I didn't want to be influenced or shifted. And when you decide at 10 years old to cut yourself off and invent yourself, usually you have a lot more willpower than you have common sense (laughs) or maturity. So I I kind of thought myself into a real weird way to doing life that made me very depressed until I was about 32 when uh, events kind of conspired and got so bad, I was finally able to bust out of that. Um, And then within about two weeks of looking around and seeing all the bright colors and the three dimensions and the way that everything was kind of real instead of being filtered through this convoluted mind I had, I, I realized there's more than meets the eye. And I became this spiritual seeker kind of guy that, that went off the rails with that for a few <laughs> years. And then I discovered, well, I didn't really discover it. My guru at the time told me to go be a therapist. So that's how I got started on my career, believe oh, wow. it or not. I'd never taken a psychology class before and it had never occurred to me, but I was in this kind of surrender mm. mode, which was actually good for me because I was such a know-it-all thinking I knew best <laughs> about everything. Uh, to surrender to anyone, however delusional they might be was still a benefit on my end you know so then i got going on being a therapist and during all of this i was writing getting a little bit better at it gradually because i was a guy that couldn't really take a class and learn much i had to, to work it all out on my own by just writing a whole bunch of bad manuscripts and how old were you at the time when you started kind of becoming a therapist you know i was 19 did you read home? <laughs> uh therapist i started i started school to be a therapist at 35 
which means uh, in this country you get to start seeing people 36, 37 with supervision. So I've been doing it, you know, like 30 years or something as, you know, and a variety of settings where I've seen a whole lot of different stuff, uh, working with ages mostly from 17 to about 98. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's... A lot of people in the 17 to 24 range, because we're kind of a college town here where I am, and uh, the college farms out everybody. They just they see you once, and then they set you up with somebody in mm. town. Uh, you, you can tell us a little bit about the book, because I, I think that's kind of, I suppose, the, the audience in the, in the young adult kind of audience. Sure. So tell us a little you bit know, about your book, uh, Vernon. I will. You know, in other interviews, I've been just kind of winging it when people mm. ask that question. But I realized... I wrote a great blurb that's on the back of the book with some help. And believe it or not, my publisher has a blurb committee right. that approves blurbs. <laughs> a blurb committee. I'd love to be on a blurb committee. But let me just read this because, I don't know, I think this sums mm. it up pretty well. A flood of 200-year-old memories from a past life knocks boy genius Triss right off his stool at the quiz show he was winning. Then a letter arrives from 50-year-old time capsule that sends him on a quest to find a book of wisdom that his karmic ancestors have been compiling for centuries. Really? Sure, he's smarter than all the adults around him, but how's he supposed to navigate an interstate scavenger hunt and elude a group of fanatic lowlifes? Tris has to grow into someone beyond his years to get the job done. He learns the hard way that the smartest boy in the world isn't. So that's what my book's about, more or less. It's about a, a kid and his sidekick therapist, or maybe the, he's the sidekick of the therapist, uh, going around on a kind of interstate scavenger hunt trying to find this book of wisdom and in the meantime they're actually gathering quite a bit between the two of them and what they go through by the by the time they find the book they discover you know actually kind of know a lot of this already and i actually include the book at the end because i thought it would really be cheating people to have a an object that's desired and chased and all kinds of danger associated with getting and at the end you don't even get to see what it is so i i came up with 40 pages of what i considered to be the the best wisdom I had available, which isn't really like a whole book, but at least yeah, it's yeah. something. And I figure, I figure people aren't really going to plow through it. The kind of young adult readers that are enjoying the, the plot part are not going to enjoy the exposition part. But, you know, my editor let me throw it in there. And so I did well, it. In our pre-record chat we had with you, Berlin, you mentioned how the book was almost an alternate channel for educating people on psychology. What, what was your thought process with, well, that, in, with the book? Well, in a sly kind of way, various characters are slipping in their perspective that are really my perspective. I think, you know, you don't want to be heavy handed about messages, especially with young mm. adult kids or, or ideas about, hey, here's a good way to live. Why don't you switch mm. over to this? Any more than in a professional setting, clinically, you want to take that kind of approach because all you're going to do is kind of arouse defenses. One of the main developmental tasks at this point, uh, uh, well, throughout a lot of childhood is, is autonomy and deciding for themselves and, you know, kind of working it out without being told how something is. So in the, in the in the plot, there are various sort of angles that come up that somebody has to sort out and figure out and what principles are they using. And so there's this, this piece of paying attention and mindfulness as a way to get a line on what they need to do next. There's some energy experiences, if you will, that kind of expand the paradigm the same that the reincarnation stuff does. And, and then you got to find a way to hold stuff that you you kind of weren't big enough inside to hold this stuff until you find a way to expand i don't, I don't know if you know what i mean but i went through that i like i say i had this sort of big opening at a certain point in my life where i had an internal revolution and it just kind of blew up 
all my ideas about what life was about. You know, I'm always informed by kind of a secular Buddhist philosophy. I don't think there's anything I, I think about or understand without that kind of being in the background. And it, it seeps out mm-hmm. in the book, hopefully without interfering at all with the kind of the suspense and the excitement. It's got a lot of twists and turns. Um, but to me, it's, it's, it's richer. I think it's an insult to think that young adults need really simplified books or, or superficial books or just things that, uh, you know, are speaking down to them. You know, I think they're capable of, of dealing with mm-hmm. a lot more stuff mm-hmm. than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. My, my own master's is in uh, child and okay. adolescent psychotherapy. But from from your own experience, Verlin, um, what would you say is the difference between working with we'll say the young adults versus the older? Adults? Well, you know, it's it's it, what, what would be your particular approach? Well, to there's a lot more movement. I think you can get somewhere because they haven't really set in concrete what their stuff is. And they're still kind of trying to figure it out. But you do have to be less direct in many cases, I find. And so I, I really try and meet people where they're at. Mm. And if I get some goofy kid, I'm goofy with them. If I get some kid that's sort of trying to convince me he's the smartest guy in the world, then I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be smart back at him to be a guy worthy of this guy's attention. And so, mm. it, you know, one size doesn't fit all. Mm. But I definitely think that the relationship is really important with young adult more than the, the interventions yeah, or the... Absolutely. Exact content, you yeah. say. You, you got to convince them that you're on their side. You're not just an agent for their parents that's going to rat them out to their parents, that, that you remember what it was like mm. when you were that age. And you can even use examples of, oh, geez, I ran into that, you know, when I was 15. Here's what I did. It didn't work mm. out great at all. But my friend did it this other way, and that worked out well for him. So a lot of kind of almost like casual suggestions or things to try or experiments to run so that they get mm. to go have an experience. And learn from that experience themselves instead of, once again, you trying to over-guide them or whatever. I, I don't know. Does that match what you do, too? Oh, yeah. 100%. Is, yeah. Um, just a kind of this, the way I take my life, this kind of simplified path to that where just, just say I'm doing the dishes and you know I'm doing them yeah. kind of, of my own accord. If someone asks me to do the dishes while I'm doing the dishes, it really yeah, makes exactly. me not want to do the dishes. <laughs> exactly. Is that kind of the same thing? Sort of yeah. Char- yeah. Almost charm people out of their defenses especially younger people and, and people with personality mm, mm. disorders. I've worked with a lot of borderline people and, and some fairly extreme people. And if they're not sold on you as a person, everything in there is a battle of sorts. You know, at, at the least, it's sort of a, yeah. a, a war of agenda about what's even going to get talked about, you know. And I, and I think, you know, exactly from what you said, Verlin, and, and it matches exactly with my own take. And I think where a lot of parents struggle with, you know, children of that age is they don't try to meet the, the, the teenager or the young adult right. in their world right you know, and, and as a therapist you know one of the, and i'll say it to parents when when they come in depending on the age of the teenagers uh first thing i'll say to them is um one take it the no news is good news you're not going to be hearing from me you know i need to respect that therapeutic relationship and you know for the first three or four sessions you're probably not going to see yep. any kind of change because those early sessions are firmly built on establishing yeah, that therapy yeah. and they need to set the agenda you know it's you know i've had i've had kids mm. come in because their mom was worried about them smoking dope and they come in and they want to talk about their relationship with mm. their father well then that's what we do why do mm. i care what somebody else wants to talk about yeah, exactly. it's not going to be meaningful unless they have some inner motivation around what we're talking about in fact in general when people are assigned to therapy whether it's by their boss their wife or their parent 
they're not starting off thinking that there's something wrong with them that they need to work on, that they need to become different about. They might develop an interest in those directions if you kind of noodle around for a while, but a lot of times they don't. I mean, that's a pretty mm. low percentage crowd as far as really getting somewhere because they don't have anywhere they want to go. I was going to say, I worked very briefly uh, at an internship at a high school, and the only kids I got were sort of disciplinary punishment for something the vice principal was mad about. So it's like, go see this therapist, he'll straighten you out. You know, I mean, that's not our job, you know? <laughs> I didn't last exactly. too long. Uh, I didn't yeah. get along with yeah. that crowd. <laughs> yeah, and I'd often, I'd often say it to parents, like, you know, I'm, I'm not here yeah. to push your agenda. And I specifically say that to, to the teen or the, the young adult. And a lot of parents, going, a lot of parents know, don't parents, understand what's a normal developmental stage to be at. They see their kid doing a bunch of stuff that's new and different. Yeah. And they think, oh, man, they've gone off the rails as opposed to that's what 16-year-olds do. You know, don't you remember, for God's exactly. sake? You know? yeah. I, mean, I, I, think, <clears throat> I think kind of the toughest thing to acknowledge now as well is how yeah. generations change. So what, mm. what say, your parents might have done at 16 could be completely different to what yeah, your generation is doing That's true. I think, you at know, 16. The world being the way it is, that certainly kids are going to end up in therapy talking about different yeah. stuff 20 years from now than they are now. Sure. Mm-hmm. I'd mm-hmm. often, I'd often ask the the adult, uh, the the parents, if if the, as again, <coughs> usually under sixteen, I bring the parents in first, and I would usually ask them, um, you know, would you go back to being a teenager? And they're like, no, <laughs> Jesus Christ, yeah. no, absolutely not. Would you go back to being a teenager nowadays with social media, cameras, everything that they have to put up with now? And they're like, yeah, absolutely not. I was like, well, you know, <laughs> this is the world. Yeah, your kid they're is just they're just dealing mm-hmm. with a lot of stuff, you know. I mean, they've got you know they're trying to impress their peers, they're trying to um, maintain their grades mm-hmm. or their jobs, they're feeling good about who they are. They're trying to cast off whatever conditioning they got stuck with that doesn't fit for them. And then in the midst of it, there's all the normal life difficulties that are coming along that that are challenges for anyone. I mean, it's it's a it's a you know the ground keeps shifting underneath young adults we we get to stand on the same yeah. ground even as there's a lot of changing that goes on around us all the time but there's there's more of a solid center when you're when you're older because you can base it on a kind of the a, i don't know uh, what you've learned from the all the experiences you've been through i mean I, I i'm just i'm so much less sure about a lot of things from being older but at the same time i'm more sure about <laughs> my center being solid and, and harder to knock me sideways when a wind comes along you know but it is it is that period of life where, you know, traditionally and obviously, you know, things have changed, times have changed. But traditionally, that period of, you know, up to a couple of hundred years ago, you know, people were getting married at 18, 19, 20. Yeah. You know, you hit you were out into the world. You, you made your own way and the world isn't that way. But we have we are driven to this place of. You know, as, as we talk about writing and um, books of that hero journey, you know, to make your way into the world, to find your to find your yeah. path. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of parents struggle with is that, oh, no, he has to do or she has to do yeah. what I want them to do. It's like this is going against their biology. This is going yeah. against their nature. Yeah. That's going go into the world. Form yeah. your well, I think, you know, there's this illusion that a lot of people have that there's some universal best way to do life. And if this worked for me. It should work for you, and therefore I should talk you into doing it this yeah. way. But then it becomes a battle of will, where it's my way versus your way. You know, I'm curious to hear from Cameron, who's a little closer in age to the demographic we're talking about. What do you think about all this? Mm. 
I actually just what what you said there, Alan, about you know kids getting married at 18, 19, 20. So yeah. Berlin, if you didn't know, I'm twenty two. I got invited to a wedding last month, and it scared <laughs> yeah. the fucking shit out of yeah. me. <laughs> and I'm twenty two. It terrified because yeah. I'm nowhere near that. And there's like nobody I know is near that yeah. aside from these two people. And well, it's just it, so different now as opposed to say when you were younger, Dan, this, it was the common thing. Mm. If you weren't married or had at least one kid by 22, you were f- fucked. I don't so, think um, you can know things in a definitive way at an early age because people haven't had the same body of experience by then that, that they had in the old days. I mean, you're just going to school mm. fairly continuously, often with the same bunch of people through the years. And, you know, I mean, for me, it was all the hard-earned, mostly challenging experiences that let me figure anything out. I mean, I was a really slow learner, and I wouldn't say I even became much of a grown-up till I was, you know, 40 or something, let alone somebody that could pick a partner and know what might be a good match or sign up. You know, I don't think I ever had a job more than three, four years. I don't think I was ever in a relationship more than I don't know how many years. I mean, and I think to some degree... My experience mirrors what's going on internally with people, even if they should grab onto somebody at 24 and settle in. Do they really know what they're doing, or is that just what was available at that time and what was expected of them, or or some kind of fearful thing Mm -hmm. that they wouldn't get someone? I mean, I do know couples that got together early and it all worked out. But, you know, I'm with Mm -hmm. you. It's just... It's just sort of wild to think that, uh, you know, you can really settle down early and make it work. I mean, it's, you know, I actually was talking to somebody about this the other day. Uh, you know, my parents haven't throughout their lives. My, my, my mom's 95. My dad passed away last year. They were together for 73 years. They like got together in college. They stayed together the whole time. They were in one house almost the whole time. And it, it doesn't serve as a dynamic, a vehicle to, to grow and change and develop as when you go through a series of different kinds of contexts and different kinds of relationships. And it's not that they didn't do any at all, but it's just more constrained. I mean, they didn't go to Uruguay with a a woman from Minneapolis that, you know, neither of them ever went off and did a different kind of work for a while. I think my mom had never been a bar in her life till I brought her once to hear some music when I was like in my 20s. You know, I mean, stuff like that. They didn't spend a night apart from one another for decades. I don't know. And, and, and so young adults, I think it makes sense, actually, for them to be less sure and to have the freedom to wait. Mm. But yeah. at the same time... And I think it's such a strange... Sorry, No, no, go no, ahead, no you go ahead. I'm, I'm just rambling. I, I, I need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, I was just going to say it's such a strange dynamic now because say you are in a relationship with someone and you see other relationships on social media that look so perfect, especially mm. on like... No. Verlin, are you on TikTok by any chance? <laughs> no. Well, t- TikTok has um, this particularly ca- yeah. particular category where it's just about couples and like perfect relationships. So people who are in their relationship get to see these perfect couples that seemingly yes. don't ever yes. fight and do everything together and buy each other flowers and rings and all that shit. And then you, yeah. you look at your partner and think, oh, well, he or she doesn't do that for me. And it almost creates an argument out yeah. of no, I somebody else's relationship. Mm. And it's something that older generations didn't didn't have to deal with. Well, we still dealt with it in the sense that couples walk around trying to look bright mm. and shiny and convince everybody they're a good yeah. couple. Mm. And if you don't have the opportunity to know what's going on beneath the surface, if you're not a therapist, if you're not somebody's mm. confidant, there is this tendency to look at other people and think, wow, they're more together than me. They're happier than me. They throw out these Christmas cards about how all their kids are going hmm. to great schools and they're they're getting raises and they're doing, you know, I mean, there's lots of other stuff they're not telling us. And in my experience, 
comparing yourself to sort of the bright, shiny surface when you know about all the cruddy inside stuff, it, it always makes you come off looking poorly. It's like reality versus an ideal. An ideal makes reality look crappy when there's nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't match up to the ideal. And we tend to idolize, idealize rather, based on these things like, you know, couples doing big public displays of affection to yeah, show how yeah. crazy they are about each other or, or whatever's going on on TikTok, like you mm -hmm. say. Um, it's a lot to sort through. I mean, that's the kind of thing that young adults are kind of barraged with and, and having to sort through mostly on their own unless things go really wrong and then they have a therapist to help. Mm. But often it would be better if they'd had someone to talk to a lot yeah. sooner. I'm, I'm, always, um, I'm always surprised in the change for, uh, and we discussed it in, in, in our interview with uh, James last week, of the, the difference in mentality toward mental health uh, for the young adult age now, that they recognize I have a problem with my mental health. Yeah, my mental health's not the best at the moment, yeah. so I just thought I'd go and need to talk to someone. And it's a vastly different experience from previous generations where mental health, what's that? Just just get on with it. You're not working hard enough. Yeah. You know, you've yeah. you've no reason to be feeling the way you're feeling. And just to reiterate something yeah. James said in our interview last week, he kind of emphasized the importance of getting younger people to speak to therapists and the sort earlier in life when they still have time to figure yes. everything out, say, in their 20s, rather than figuring yes. it out in their late 30s or early, early 40s when they don't have time to change it. Yeah, and, and it, it gets more set in stone, as I was saying earlier. I, I do think that the sooner the better, and I, I'm often complimentary to people that contact me at 19 or 20 or 21. Mm, even even so if they don't have major problems, it's like good for them to get Absolutely. going on this stuff with help early on mm. before you know it leads down and either gets worse or gets more convoluted or gets more set in stone mm. or starts manifesting in, in behavioral problems or relationship entanglements i mean it's most people still around here you know i mean as i said it's a university town it's a little bit different but i'd say most people here don't really come in until things get really bad and for most people yeah. they can endure badness until it's still bad at 40 or it's gotten worse at 50 or whatever. So you're mm -hmm. in the, you know, 20 years ago, the typical client was a woman in her mid forties in, in, in my area. And now it is a lot younger, which I think mm -hmm. is great. And it makes me wish I had a chance to, to come in sooner. I, I remember I was in my late twenties, really depressed, having a lot of physical symptoms of part of it. And I went to the doctors to get tested and they tested all the medical stuff. And they said, well, you know, it might be, you know, these symptoms really mimic what goes along with depression if you've been feeling down lately. So I thought about it carefully and I said, no, I'm feeling about the same now as I have, you know, maybe the last 15 years. <laughs> I was continuously depressed for 15 years and had no idea. No idea. Now, if they just pushed a little bit more and said, oh, tell us about what you were like before the last 15 years. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was different, you know. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people I, like me are just resistant to the idea that there's something wrong with them on a grand enough scale mm. to need help. It's a self-esteem yeah. issue, if you will, you know? Yeah. I have a fairly negative outlook on social media for somebody whose career is probably going to be based around social media. <laughs> yeah. But one of, I just think it, if you don't know how to use it properly, it can really just be a killer to everything about you. Yeah. But yeah. one of the things I am grateful for with social media, particularly in my generation, is how how they've managed to help people express their their own mental health. Mm -hmm. They've made it a lot easier now, especially in the last kind of three or four years. Mm. They've really kind of given people a platform, even just to speak out to strangers. 
yeah to put it in a tweet or something and just put it out there yeah no it's and true. then you have people encouraging them to go and seek help mm-hmm. it's true of the yeah. internet too before the internet people were isolated with their suffering and not understanding that mm-hmm. there might be a syndrome where there's 10,000 other people swapping stories that are going through the same thing. They're explaining what helped them, what they've tried, what they haven't tried. Yeah. A lot of times I refer people to, to find other people on the internet to communicate with. So they don't feel yeah. so much like this is all about me. I'm a screw up and that's mm-hmm. why I can't get off the couch. No, you have this disorder and here are all these other people who can't get off the couch that you're going to be in contact with and actually really like and think are pretty cool. Yeah, you can find you can find a Reddit group now for a disease you didn't think existed. Yeah. But pe- there's there's 10,000 other people who have this same yeah. disease that they didn't think existed. Mm. Yeah, and, and and those ways of connecting people are great. And and as you say, mm. just sort of flushing out into open things that normally are kept hidden. Uh, Verlin, one of the things I find um, a real difficulty in a lot of the young adults that I work with is a very real existential crisis of, and I think you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I need to have it all figured out. You know, I get into my early 20s or, you know, I've done what we would call secondary school, high school for you. Now I'm supposed to go off to college. I'm supposed to know what career I want. Some of them go off to college to figure out that this isn't what they want to do. And this thing that drives them of, well, I should know yes, what I want yes. to do. There are, there are an awful lot of... Sh- and having, having to have life figured out at this yeah. age and feeling like a failure yeah. because they don't know what they want to do. And it just, it's compounded then because, as you said earlier about that comparison of, you know, you're comparing yourself to, well, my friend, he's doing yeah. this or he's doing that and he has this job or he's got this great girlfriend and they've just been going off doing this on holidays and things like that. And I think the social media factor plays into that then as well, because you should, you're supposed to know that this is the pressure that they put on themselves to have it all figured out. And it's, you know, there's times I feel like, Oh, you don't, this is your twenties. This is your time to try all the different hats on and find what fits for yourself. Yeah. Uh, There's a therapist here that used to call that shooting all over yourself. S H O U L D. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's some truth to that. And it's such a pattern because it's, it's not just young people, anybody that operates according to a, sort of an outside circumstance or outside standard about who they're supposed to be is, is really setting themselves up for a lot of disappointment and frustration and mm. self-esteem issues because everybody's on a different schedule of events. Everyone's life path is literally unique. And who's to say mm. what should happen when? I mean, there's cultural mores or guidelines around this stuff, but you know, in any individual life, often they're just complete crap. And It's not just a different schedule. It's It's just that you know what? What is your what is your life about? I like to see life as curriculum. Mm. It's like there's there's things about me and that I'm likely to encounter and that I do encounter that I need to squeeze the learning out of in order to keep growing and develop. So at any given time, whatever's going on in my life uh, could be seen as kind of a piece of curriculum. And everybody's different curriculum. Mm. You know, there are people who are learning about what it's like to live on a farm and stay in the same house their their whole life. There's people whose lives are about going through a lot of trauma and learning about how to recover from trauma. It's always apples and oranges to make any comparison because who's to say what they should be going through? Who's Mm. to say what I should be going through? It looks better or worse. I prefer one or the other, but that's all with my small ego mind. On a grand scale, it's like, 
you know, how should a, I don't know, a 31 year old living in Algeria with his mother that works as a taxi driver, you know, what should he eat for dinner? How the hell do I know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's almost the equivalent of that when I look across the street and see my neighbor mowing his lawn twice a day or whatever. Well, that works for him. <laughs> You know, yeah, but that's, that's just but it's easy that's to, bananas. <laughs> when you're not sure you are, when you're not sure who you are, you use other people as a litmus test. Yeah, both absolutely. other people's ideas about you, and then watching what the other people do and comparing yourself to them. Mm. And and that's part of the hard part about being a young adult is people haven't settled on their global okayness. Their okayness is still dependent on what's going on around mm. them, and and everybody is going to be insecure until they decide. I'm okay if somebody's mad at me. If I if I have a bad therapy session, I don't have to rethink, am I a bad therapist? I've settled that I know what I'm doing and I just had a bad therapy mm-hmm. session. If somebody's mad at me, I don't have to start thinking, God, I, I must be a real asshole. Look, I made this guy mad. It It's nothing more than what happened instead of being a reflection on who I am. But I think that takes a long time to develop. I, I think, yeah, that that's, that's a kind of uncertainty around who we are at that age. You know, and that groundedness and self-acceptance that comes in later life, that, as you said, is it becomes very dependent on what other people think or what other people say about us that that we we yeah. measure against at, at that age yeah. until we find who we are. Yeah, I think it's kind of an interim thing. At, at first, your your sense of who you are is being driven by your parents, mm. and then at mm. a certain point, your your peers get to be much more important. Yeah. Am I popular at yeah. school? And eventually, you got to shift over to yourself. Uh, I was married for a while to someone who still had this sort of high school mentality of of wanting to hang around with popular people and I'm going to be seen as a mm. geek and um, she's she's better than me because she has more friends. And it's it's a really challenging way to be. I mean, you just need to find some way to grow out of that or you're going to be deviled by all that stuff yeah. forever. Well, one of the things uh, I'd often say to clients and I've mentioned on the podcast before is, you know, particularly around adolescence, you know, so as we talk up to, up to that age of, you know, for the first 10 to 12 years, I am whatever my parents say I am. So for better yeah. or for worse. So if my parents tell me I'm a good boy, I'm loved, I'm, you know, I've got all these great qualities, then that's who I am. The next yeah. 10 to 12 years, it's based on whatever the group says I am. So those yeah. peer relationships. And if they say, as we say here, oh, he's a mad bastard, you know, well, I'll be the mad bastard. Mm-hmm. I'll jump off the roofs. I'll do the drugs. I'll be the one to high dive into the river that no one has tested before yeah. because yeah, that, yeah. that identity is now based on peer group rather than that parental view of self. Yeah, yeah. And from my perspective, you know, at some point, all that identity turns out to be bullshit, even the one that we've constructed for ourselves internally. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say we want to dissolve ourselves completely, mm. but I do think sort of being able to diminish this element of I'm a very particular individual person and you're over there and you're someone else and this tree is over there and it's something else. I mean, we're, we really are all in this together. And there is a certain kind of oneness mm. that one can experience sometimes kind of at peak moments and sometimes just kind of indirectly. But I think if you keep growing and developing, people get to that place where they're they're differentiated and they feel good about themselves. And then there's something even beyond that where they, they come into a place of, of more kindness and loving compassion because there isn't the same sense of separation, you know? Yeah. yeah. Vernon, Vernon, we can't talk about young adulthood without asking about yours. <laughs> well, what, what did your life sure. look at at that time? And what, what was it that, you know, directed you to, to take an interest in, in, in that group? I had a challenging mother, challenging for me. 
actually did her best to be kind and loving, but she was so anxious that what that looked like was getting intrusive and overhelping and being bossy and having everything kind of driven around her not feeling the emotional discomfort she would feel if you were allowed to go through your life in an ordinary way. So my sister, here's an example. My sister came home once and was crying because bullies had been mean to her. Here's my mother's approach. Did she hug her? Did she say, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I've been through that. She said to her, no, you should be happy because if you're being bullied, then some other girl's being saved from bullying. So there, there was no emotional empathy. There was this wanting to talk us out of us having feelings so that she could feel comfortable. And when she helped people, she was helping people out of a kind of narcissistic altruism as a way to manage her own feelings. So growing up with that and being brighter than most kids, I could see there was something off. There was a lot of things I weren't getting my needs met around. And so mid-teenager, having kind of divorced my family in my head at about 10 and decided I don't want to be like Mm. them. I'm going to kind of do the opposite of what they tell me to do. You know, I wasn't I wasn't within the, wasn't out there committing crimes uh, yet, I should say. Uh, I wasn't doing drugs. It was all within a kind of respectable suburban version. But I think about 15 or 16, I went a couple of years where every single question they asked me, no matter how innocent, I answered, I'm not telling. Mm. Now, how hostile <laughs> is that? My poor parents. I thought of it as appropriate because anytime they had any information on me, they would mess with it. They would use it to try and influence me or manipulate me or ask me questions or do a bunch of stuff that I didn't want them to do, which was perfectly ordinary parenting, but I didn't want them to. So I got myself, you know, uh, with no real family ties, not being aware of having any feelings for them even. I was too scared out in the world having started myself up as kind of a 10-year-old and invented myself from that point forward. I was too scared to talk about anything that had to do with feelings or reveal who I was or whatever, because I was sure that people would just find me unsatisfactory or crazy. And then walking around in that kind of mode, Mm -hmm. you end up getting pretty depressed. What is it that you're being fed by? You're not having direct experience and contact at any kind of deep level. And I threw myself into activities, uh, sports, uh, basketball, volleyball, um, Mm -hmm. got really good at them. I happened to be set up to be good at that. Anything there, anything there was to do, I'd be kind of a, a maniac about doing it and then maybe use it up and, and jump onto the next thing. And so I'd say I had a very delayed adolescence. I'd say it started early, like at 10, and it didn't really end till 30, 32, uh, despite the fact that I walked mm-hmm. around pretending to be like other people, pretending to be a, a normal 22-year-old, a normal 25-year-old. I was always aware of it as performance, where I was trying to fit in and get so sure that my authentic self would be inappropriate that I I never really offered it up too too terrified to do it. So, you know, a lot of harrowing years, if you will, and a lot of therapy and thought about those years afterwards. Um, There's almost nothing that a a client comes in, especially that age that that they're going through that I didn't go through. You know, Mm -hmm. if they're depressed, yeah, I've been depressed. Were they anxious and scared? Yeah, I was anxious and scared Uh, when I was... uh, uh, for a while, kind of helping to run a cult. Uh, I was delusional even. Um, you name it, I've had it. And I had a lot of it during the first part of my life. So it, it gives me this kind of, I don't know about insight, but certainly caring about that crowd, caring about mm. what happens to them and knowing what can happen if they don't have anybody to really open up to, or there isn't any book that broadens their horizons, or they're close to everything coming their way, uh, the way that I was. 
And and I'm just so glad that things came along, events conspired to give me the opportunity to finally shift gears when it did. And once again, whatever the schedule, I could have done that at 19, great, but 32, I'll take it. Sorry to dip out there, lads. Uh, somebody tried to use my card to make a 250 euro dance class appointment in Manchester oh jeez the card got cloned or skimmed yeah so I had to had to cancel that real quick you've experienced a little bit of identity theft in the past haven't you (laughs) you know actually I have somebody with exactly the same name uh, started using my credit he actually bought two BMWs on my credit and and the FBI the, the federal police here were chasing him all around the country it was obviously not me because I hadn't been to these places. He didn't try to forge my signature, but yeah. because he had the same name with a different initial, people didn't look close enough, and he could just say he was this mm. Mark Darrow instead of, that, well, that's my real name. Uh, there's already a Mark Darrow mm. that's an author, so I go by Verlin in the uh, yeah, in, in, mm. in this and world. Then, but anyway, it was before it was a specific crime. Back then, it was just kind of a, a general fraud. It didn't cost me money, but it, it's definitely a weird thing to go through. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm I'm not much of a dancer, and I definitely wouldn't pay 250 euro to become one. <laughs> yeah, me neither. But somebody in Manchester really wants to dance. I guess Be- so. Before... Not to commit a crime to do it, huh? <laughs> before Cameron interjected there, I was just about to make the comment that if this was a cartoon or a TV show, Verlin, a couple of minutes back there would have been a, a severe <laughs> screeching of brakes and go, hang on a second, back up. Help to run a cult? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was during (laughs) my Christmas. Let's not just not skim over that piece. (laughs) You're not getting away with that one. Well, I I ran into this. Say a little more. I ran into this guy who was kind of an extraordinary, charismatic guy, and he became a good friend. And then when I got interested in all this stuff, it turns out he was just knee-deep in it himself. And so he became this sort of spiritual mentor type guy. And then the thing kept developing where uh, he, he turned into... My guru, I turned into the first disciple. Uh, other people showed up. I wouldn't even really, you know, try and establish some big population. And nobody had to give money. There was no ashram or whatever. But pretty soon there was a small group. And because I had been the the second, the first guy in, mm-hmm. I was like the assist- starts with you, Verlin. Yeah, I was like Every the assistant starts guru. With you. It's was, the first one. It's I, the first disciple. I was like That's the assistant. <laughs> I was the assistant guru that sort of ran a little branch office in another town. It was for a couple of years. And looking back on it, it was extremely weird. But at the time, it felt like a good idea. And it was actually benign and helpful to everybody that was part of it except for one. And this was just somebody who should not have been messed with. Some people need solvent to kind of loosen up and expand. and Other people need glue. They're already put too loosely together. And, and this was a person that needed glue and got both spiritual and, and psychological solvent from the thing. But, you know, this guy, he... um. You know, he could move his fingers around and you would feel energy worrying around inside your body and stuff. And he knew things that people couldn't know. And there was all this kind of phenomenology around it. And so I had to kind of make a decision. Either he's crazy or he's spiritual. And on the spiritual side, there was too much going on to just deny it all. Now, it turns out spiritual and crazy go together all the time. But I thought it was either or. (laughs) And that's how I took the plunge. It was on the basis of this one concept that you're either one or you're the other. And I, I, I couldn't just call him crazy because there was too much stuff that was for real. So it was an interesting era. I mean, if you live your life putting all your personal preferences aside and being surrendered and let somebody else completely be in charge of your life, as, as idiotic as that sounds, there are benefits to someone, someone who's self-centered. There are benefits to someone who hasn't allowed themselves to yield to something greater to them. 
you know. Uh, it was an interesting time. You know, if I walked up to a, a stoplight and the green arrow came and pointed left, I'd go left. It was that kind of thing. It was pretty ridiculous mm. uh, looking mm. back on it. But like I say, beneficial. And it got me to therapy school because it was his idea that I should go be a therapist right at the end. I mean, he was uh, towards the end. I was back in town and seeing what he was up to more closely. And so we went away on a trip and he called and about a week later and said, so how's everybody doing in the group? I said, you know, everybody's fine. You don't really need to come back. And he said, oh, okay. So I graduated myself and everybody else out of it at that point. And we all went back to taking responsibility for ourselves and doing our lives. Um, and a lot of it is stuck to my ribs and other stuff has fallen to the wayside. And when you come out of a situation like that, that is about two years of really difficult kind of vacuum time because you've been used to sort of having a policy or a guideline about how to do life based on the, the principles and the ideas of the group, which, which were generally good ones. But, you know, what are mine? Not the ones I've inherited, but what are really mine? So mm -hmm. I've been through that. And I, I think it, it is a sort of trauma to go through. And it is a, you know, it, it, it's the way it often works when you come out of something intense, there's this vacuum time before the next thing starts that you have to be willing to endure. Things don't always line up. There's this, and boom, now mm -hmm. here's the next thing starting up right away that's going to provide some, some healing or investment in a, in a new thing. You know, um, what, what would you say was the, was the biggest impact of it on, on you, Verlin? Um, you know, that's a really good question at this point. I think it's just becoming more compassionate. I think before that, my compassion was fairly superficial. It was something I'd doing because I was supposed to, that other people seemed to like. And, you know, if there was no quid pro quo at all or nobody noticed me doing it, it didn't have value. You know, now I'm, I'm very happy to do a kindness anonymously or, or uh, you know, there's no transactional element to it at all. It's just like, that, well, that's the way to live. You mm -hmm. know, why not? Is there anything better to do? Not that I know of. But at that time, I was still, you know, I was still in it in a kind of an ambitious Verlin-esque kind of way. Even my entry into the spiritual world was very, very much a spiritual ambition. I wanted to get the, the carrot at the end. I wanted to go get enlightened. I want to be important, especially. I go here, spiritual figures talk, mm -hmm. and I wanted them to pick me out of the audience and says, oh, wait, look, there's that special guy in the crowd. I almost, I almost expected that to happen, <laughs> which is just insane, you know? And, and, that, and that, mm. that got exploded by going through this. You know, there was, there's no way to hang on to that in the midst of this. So the compassion was obviously uh, a benefit that came from yeah. it. But uh, what was the, the traumatic experience that, that, uh, that you had around it? Well, just getting the rug pulled out from under. I mean, once, once you have something that feels not exactly like a hoax, but uh, I thought it was this and this turned out to be that, and it's on a very grand scale, then you doubt everything. You doubt yourself mm. as a person that was capable of perceiving what was what all the way back in your life. You know, well then who's my friend? Who's not my friend? Well then is the weather just science or something else? It, it, that, that's kind of what I was talking about, about the difficult two years. It's this business of um, everything gets thrown up in the air for reappraisal. And that's mm. not a bad thing when you finally work through it, but it's a really challenging thing to work through because what, what if you got to, you don't trust your own, methodology for sorting through it because that's what steered you wrong with the other situation if you want to call it mm. wrong i mean i'm i'm glad i went through it and i don't regret it and it, it changed my mm. general life circumstances really drastically and i needed to be i needed to be ejected out of what i was involved in in order to keep moving um and believe it or not after 10 years of having nothing to, to do with this guy we're friends again long distance friends but we email 
We exchanged photos. <laughs> I, I forgive him. And he understands what he was up to and that it wasn't a good idea. And he's dedicated himself to being a good person in other arenas since then. Um, that's the thing. It was always sincere. It was just mm. a little delusional. You know, I mean, if, if I think I'm whoever and I go about as whoever doing the best I can to help people, it's not evil or creepy. It's just that, well, I'm not really whoever. So all the rest of it doesn't mean what it seems to mean. Anyway, that's my long answer. Verlin, for, for any of our listeners out there, where, where, can they, where can they find your book? Where can they find out more about you? There's, there's the poetry, there's the songwriting. So how, how can they find out a little bit more sure. in the world of Verlin Darrow? Well, I've got a website, verlindarrow.com, and that's got all that stuff on it, stuff about the other books. It's got some recordings of songs. You can check them out if you want. They're, they're kind of 1950s country western style songs. Um, mm. You know, not quite yodeling. Well, maybe a little, but... I don't know if you if you guys know Hank Williams over there, but mm-hmm. hearing his voice for the first Cameron doesn't. <laughs> hearing no, his, I don't. He, <laughs> he was really important in my life. Hearing his voice for the first time in a movie soundtrack just cut through all the stuff I was talking about, all this defenses, all this bouncing off, and I felt stuff. I don't know what it was about his voice; it just cut right through. And so I I spent years and years singing along with his uh, uh, tapes at that point, trying to develop, uh, and finally I kind of did. Anyway. So there's verlindarrow.com. I don't mind at all if people want to email me, and that's uh, verlindarrow at gmail.com. And then uh, the book's available on all the ebook kind of places, you know, Amazon, Nook, mm. wherever. I'm, I'm sure they're not in any bookstores where you are because yeah. uh, that's not the way things work these days. But it's easy enough yeah. to find it online. And there's, you know, there's an author page on Amazon, too, if that's easier to go look at it. It's it, you know, it's about as easy to get as any book these days. It's a real publisher. It's right. on there somewhere. So that was straight talking young adulthood with author and psychotherapist Verlin Darrow. Hugely interesting topic to cover, and actually a hugely interesting life which which Verlin has led. And we're certainly grateful for him for sharing his knowledge around young adulthood and also his life experience, which is absolutely fascinating stories. How often do you get to hear of someone who uh, helped start a cult? was there from the ground up. So a huge thank you to Verlin for sharing his story. If you like what you heard, you can give us a rating. You can log on to your iTunes if that's where you check out your podcast. Give us five stars if you feel the podcast and the episode is worth it. We would really appreciate that. If you want to check us out on social media, you can do that. You can get us on Twitter, STR8, number eight, Talking Pod. And we're on Facebook and we're on Instagram, Straight Talking Mental Health Podcast. Give a like, give a share, give a retweet, share us to your story on Instagram. All of it helps and we're hugely grateful for everyone that that helps us on that front. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us at hello at stmhpodcast.com. That's the website as well, stmhpodcast.com. If you've got a story to tell, if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, if there's any feedback you'd like to give us, we'll take all of that. We're, we're, we love hearing from everyone. And if you want to leave comments on any of the particular episodes, you can do that. The, the episodes are there every, every week on the podcast. You can click on the link and the post for each episode. And you can leave a comment on the website and we can respond to those. And we love to read out your feedback back on the podcast every week big shout out to Fiona Bryan for hooking us up with the beats that's the music you hear at the start and the stop the mind is a terrible thing to waste P hooked up that sample but Fiona he hooked up the music for us and we're hugely grateful to him for doing so and if you need your beats if you've got some music you want produced he's the guy to go to his rocket has taken off hook onto it while you can folks as always we're going to leave the last word with our guests so a huge thanks to Verlin and I'm sure he's going to have some words of wisdom to share with us from his life of experience But in the meantime, folks, look after yourselves and look after each other. 
Merlin, thank you so much for, for being such a great guest for us. One of one of the things we ask every guest that comes on to the to the podcast to do is to share some of their words of wisdom, some of the life learnings they've taken from this life or you know, motto or a creed that they live by, some some words of wisdom that they'd like to share with the people around the world. So we maybe throw that over to you to, sure. to maybe share some of the wisdom you've taken from this life. Okay. I, I think probably the most important thing that I've learned, and we haven't really touched on it yet exactly, is, is what's called radical acceptance, which is not the business of being passive or saying everything is okay with me, but it's getting mm-hmm. away from fighting reality, from perceiving that it should be this way, it should be that way. I don't like it this way. I'm going to kind of control it. If you have an adversarial relationship with the world going on around you, it leads to a lot of suspense, um, tension, just, you know, discomfort, suffering. I think you want to f- work towards trying to get congruent so your insides and the outsides are basically on the same kind of page where, you know, on a given day, your personal preference is uh, something that the universe would want to cooperate with because its personal preference is along the same lines, that sort of thing. So, so finding a way to cooperate with the way things need to be instead of trying to arm wrestle life into submission and make it be the way you want it to be. It's almost like letting things happen instead of making things happen. It's a really different stance. The, you know, the American way is all pull yourself up by your bootstraps and works hard and anybody can be president. And you know, that's all bullshit. That's not how life works. I was designing a wedding on a time of year that was supposed to be dry. We have a dry season here where it hardly ever rains. And I wake up in the morning and it's raining instead. Yeah, I, it would be fun, wouldn't it? I didn't <laughs> grow up with this. Anyway, I go outdoors and it's raining that morning. <laughs> I can go out in the driveway and I can shake my fist at the weather god in the sky and do that all day and yell curses. Okay, now I'm totally fighting something that, you know, obviously I have no control over. The weather is more obvious than other people, but really other people are more like the weather than we want to think in terms of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Alternately, mm-hmm. I could go ahead with the wedding in the pouring rain and everybody could get drenched and get sick, which is another form of not accepting the reality. Or I could say, okay, it's a rainy day. What can we do to scurry around and make a plan to have a good wedding on a rainy day? Let's find an indoor venue. So you're working within the bounds of the stuff that's surrounding you instead of trying to sculpt it to suit you because it just doesn't work. And most people don't stop doing that until they really get that it doesn't work, until they've tried and tried and tried and tried and realized they're banging their head against the wall. Mental health. Street talk. Mental health. Street talk. Mental health.